From a halfway functioning studio, it is tonight's episode of the Horror Podcast. Welcome, new folks and old folks, uh, to the wonderful Horror Podcast, where we take a uh, movie and hopefully dissect it for how it can and cannot be used in the classroom. We are going to approach tonight's episode like we approach every episode. We are going to uh, talk to you a little bit about what Oren and I have been watching and reading and discussing. Uh, we're going to bring you some free content on the internet in our dark corners of the web. And finally, we are going to discuss tonight's movie. But before we get there, Oren, how's it going? Yeah, it's going. I bet, I bet it's going better for me than you, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's been one of those times, you know, <laughs> I think, uh, this is, uh, it, my, my halfway functioning studio is, uh, an example or, or a repercussion of getting back to school and, uh, all of the nonsense that comes along with it. So I mean, we got, this could be worse given that. Uh, yeah. Right. Like <laughs> if that's the only hiccup that we have, then, uh, you know, I guess, uh, shit's okay, I guess, uh... but, uh, we got these fancy new updates to hopefully help us teach uh, Zoom. And uh, as a result, uh, my camera doesn't work anymore. If that's the update, I don't want it. <laughs> the update is no more cameras. Right. Guys. Yeah. Good luck. And you better not cough. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, everything going okay in your neck of the woods? Everything's going pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just working, hanging in there. I don't have to go back to school, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, and here's the bottom line, Oren. Uh, I love the glasses. I think you've got your room all set because you're going to have to carry uh, the image for everybody. We've got some folks showing up a little bit late. Uh, but yeah, my, my camera doesn't work today. So you get to look at all of Oren all class long. So lucky, lucky all you time. guys. Oren <laughs> all the time. So... Uh, what are you watching? What are you reading? What's uh, what's going on in, in Castle Grey? Well, so I was all excited because I actually read something this week, but I don't actually want to talk about that because I got in the mail Clown in the Cornfield, and so I'm about to start that. I got that literally today, and so I'm really excited to read that. Hell yeah, dude. That is, that is next on my list. I'm super excited. Yeah, it is uh, fantastic. Uh, we... we um... I think Kyle reviewed it for Signal Horizon, but uh, I, I read it too. And it reads like, like uh, I don't know, kind of like a, a modern evolution of a Fear Street novel. Yeah. Because, you know, like it's written in this kind of uh, YA style, but I would mm -hmm. say it's way more clever. And more importantly, I, and I think the, the, the thing that deserves all the praise is he writes like, high school kids, teenage kids in such a real fashion. That's like my huge pet peeve. Like yeah. he's real with these kids. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, like Adam, Adam's great. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. And, um, you know, one of the things, I mean, but before, before he and I became friends, I read some of his stuff. And one of the things that I, I always really liked about uh, even as very early stuff is that, uh, he's very good at writing this writing that feels at a glance, it feels very simple. It feels very approachable, almost like pulp, you know, almost like very, very mainstream feeling to it. But like, it's like you said, it's a lot more clever than that. There's a lot more going on under the hood than appears at first glance. And that, that very uh, approachable exterior kind of lulls the reader very well, I think. And lets yeah. some of that, and lets some of that deeper stuff get in there in ways that it wouldn't if the writing was itself more like dense. Yeah, I, I think that's a hundred percent right. So, and that is clown in the cornfield. It's out and available now. And uh, I think you can get it almost every place. We'll have a, so. we'll have a direct link to it in um, a bookstore that is not Amazon. If you would rather support <laughs> a small business, but if you want to do Amazon, that's cool too. We'll include both links there. So yeah. What uh? What else? Anything else? 
Uh, I think that's, I mean, I, uh, I think that's mostly been it for me. Um, see, I started watching um, this like anthology film that's on Prime, I think, that's called Weird Fiction. Yeah, but, okay. Okay, in spite of the title, it does not seem to have much, if anything, to do with what we think of as weird fiction. It's just kind of a standard shot on video style, like, 80s throwback horror anthology, but it's pretty good so far. I've only watched like two segments, uh, but okay. they've been pretty good. Um, it's got like, it's got like a a very low budget, um, like crypt keeper type host. Like there's this guy in like pancake makeup in a basement being the host. But I mean, you know, it's it's fun so far. Okay, cool. I mean, I'm down. I'm down to try almost anything, especially. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I like anthologies, but if I'm being real they've been real hit or miss this last year. So it's, I love, like, I love horror anthology films, but almost all of them are real hit or miss. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's maybe like, you know, half a dozen to a dozen, like genuinely great horror anthology films and all the rest are like a really good segment and some okay segments and a couple of not so good segments. And, you know, they don't, shell into a really great film a lot of the time but i still love them yeah that that is more or less my take like i can usually find a vignette in every anthology but i mean i might have to go all the way back to like vhs or something like that to to really find an anthology that i think is just strong universally you know so yeah i mean i think i'm trying to think of the last like really good full-on anthology movie i saw like scare package was pretty good yeah it was okay um which i saw panic fest it was pretty good and um before that the mortuary collective that i reviewed for Signal yeah Legend was really good um and that's playing right now um at fantasia so oh cool yeah it's, it's really good if anybody has a chance to watch it however fantasia is happening streaming i assume yeah um it's really good yeah it is it is quite good so very good well um I have a couple of things that I'm super stoked for. We had Jason Teal on uh, last season. He sent me his like final proofed copy of his anthology or not anthology, but his, uh, you know, his book that came out. Uh, It's called We Were Called Specimens, an archive of the deity Marjorie. And uh, it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. It's totally great. Uh, The cover of which I will show everybody next time uh, is freaking cool uh, as shit so. say, I, if, if i'd been thinking i could have brought mine because i've got a copy too um because i wrote the introduction for it but you you have great taste because it's uh yeah. it's really quite good <laughs> yeah and uh I, that, I, but... <laughs> I uh my newest review for fantasia fest um is a movie called alone oh. it is uh a movie directed by john hyams and uh, it's a really tiny cast. It's got Jules Wilcox and Mark Menchaca. And I wasn't super familiar with Mark Menchaca. I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. I think I am. But uh, he played Jack in the Outsider series that I loved. And oh, okay. he plays the bad guy. And he's just so malevolent. You know, like he's he, in, he kind of plays this dopey, like not overly scary archetypal like serial killer guy you know but it's this like internal malevolence that he has that makes the movie fantastic um i'll include uh, a link in the the full review but what i love about it is essentially the cast is just two people it's Mm -hmm. uh you know the two main characters and uh uh, the female character's name is Jessica and she's essentially running from uh, who's credited just as the man through the whole movie through about 90 minutes of it, but it's broken into four parts and yeah. the, the four parts kind of represent the environments of what she's running from him. And I, it's just really well paced and really clever. And it's my, at least as of right now, it's my favorite, it's my favorite movie coming out of Fantasia. So everyone, when it gets a wide release, and it will, because Magnolia is putting it out, make sure you check out um, Alone, because it's great. That sounds cool. Yeah, man. It uh, The first part is just, uh, I think it's called The Road or The Highway or something like that. And it totally feels like um, 
like like traffic horror, you know, like road horror. So like uh-huh. uh, uh, in in the review, I referenced that it uh, harkens back to like Duel or uh, mm-hmm. the classics like Joyride. And I don't give a shit if anybody says uh, that's not a classic. <laughs> I love that movie. So it's so much fun. And, and uh, yeah, so it, it's super great. Check it out. Uh, speaking of, I mean, not not that, but like speaking of like really small, simple things, I did finally get watching host. Oh yeah, what'd you think? It was good. It was good. Um, so the more more than the movie itself. So I watched it. Grace was out of town, and I watched it really late at night because I tend to stay up too late when Grace isn't home. And so I watched it at like one in the morning or something or, or midnight or something like that and you know it's like an hour long so it was over at like one or two in the morning and as soon as it was over and i shut it off there was this loud on my ceiling i shit you not so I, like i don't know what it was i don't yep. i don't live in an apartment i live in a townhouse like my ceiling there's a roof above it <laughs> so you got squirrels or something squirrels i guess bats. i don't know i've never heard it any other time so i don't know what it was terrifying yeah, terrifying it's great <laughs> yeah man like the ideal first, compliment for that film i i i uh i don't know what it is but i you know obviously we're we're gigantic horror fans but uh i when my wife goes out of town or she's not here shit just gets scarier and it's like i don't like it, it, do i like in the subtext do i think that she's gonna protect me maybe i mean she's pretty badass but like I don't know. I turn into a child. It's well, it's, 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 um, right. Like another person gives us consensus reality, right? They, they, oh, another, sure. Yeah. Another, another person can tell us that was this thing or, you know, they, they give us an anchor, something to bounce off of when we're by ourselves, our imagination blows up and it's all the reality we have really. We can't yeah. check against anything except our own experience. Yeah, yeah. So it, everything's scarier when you're by yourself. Well, scarier by yourself, and like the bottom line is, we are human beings, so like creatures yeah. of the night are mm-hmm. uh, uh, like not necessarily our our friends. Case in point, the family was uh, by the family. I mean, my thirteen year old son and my wife and I were sitting on the couch a few weeks back. It was like midnight. We were wrapping up whatever we were watching maybe something spooky i don't know keep in mind i live in a neighborhood all right so like a there's a neighborhood full of kids full of whatever it's a friday night midnight all the lights are still on in the house and the way my couch is situated it's it's backed up right against the main window in my living room and somebody ran up to my house and knocked on my window three times and i'm sure it was like one of my son's friends Who's mm. out way past? But it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, man, it was uh, it was brutal. But yeah, so yeah, that's what we're saying is we're gonna review all of these amazing films, do all of this uh, great analysis. But the long story short is just knock on some shit, and Orin and I will be scared. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously, if you just knock on some shit, most people will be scared. Like, look at you know any number of movies, right? It's just people jumping out and yelling boo. Yeah, movie. it's scary. Yeah, life life is a jump scare. Dude, I totally fucking feel like life is a jump scare every time I look at Twitter lately. But, you know, oh I... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move to uh, Dark Corners of the Web, shall we? Yeah. I have uh, a really interesting Dark Corner that I'm super stoked about. So one of my pastimes, whether it be right or wrong, um, especially now that daycare is starting back up, uh, the Unsel household does not have a ton of money. So... I try to read what I can and find what I can for free, especially when it comes to uh, Ellen Datlow's uh, Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12, because I know it's going to be a little while until I can get uh, a copy for Signal Horizon. I know it'll be even longer to get audio versions of all of that. They're always spectacular, but it takes a while and, and it can be a little pricey. So I was able to track down one of Ellen Datlow's uh, stories from Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12. And uh, it is absolutely fantastic. It is part of the Ink Heist podcast. The name of the story is How to Stay Afloat When Drowning by Daniel Brom. And uh, he comes on the 
uh, Ink Heist podcast and essentially just reads the story. It's about 45 minutes long, and the story is out of this world fantastic. So Awesome. I've read some of, uh, some of Daniel's other stuff, and it's always been good. I've not read that one, but... It, uh, it's got great atmosphere. Like it takes place in the seaside, like town with a boardwalk and everything, which I'm already like totally yeah. in because of the I'm, environment. Right. I'm 100% sold already. I'm done. Right. But it, uh, it's, it's got mermaids. Like talk about untapped, you know, like untapped potential, evil, scary, creepy mermaids. And it's, it's just rad. It's super great. Awesome. Yeah. And it kind of taps into this, uh, weird machismo that comes with like, uh, Oh, like big fishermen, like big fish, you know, like you, you want to go out and catch a marlin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like there's there's this deep masculinity that comes along with that, that like is not really my cup of tea, you know, so I never really understand it and I always kind of feel a little weird around it, you know, but uh, I wouldn't say it makes fun of that, but it definitely uses that like hyper masculinity to to help tell the story. So it's great. It's totally free, and uh, you can access it through Inkeist, uh podcast, which is great too. So it's awesome. Cool. All right, my friend. We have entered uh, that period of time. I know you've been waiting a couple of weeks uh, to discuss it, but before we get there, the essential question for tonight is going to be: What role does the old dark house play in the creation of modern? Haunted House Horror Tropes. You happen to have any idea where we are? I haven't the least idea in the world. We've come to ask for shelter. We've lost our way. What is it? What do they want? They want to know if they can stay here for the night. My sister Rachel had this room once. She died when she was 21. Bless our Lord, this is the house. May they approve a whole mankind. Amen. Whose life? I suppose it's a storm. Here we are, six people sitting around. What do we know about each other? Not a thing. I've got a funny feeling. Something dreadful might happen to us. You don't seem to understand. We may be cut off, shut up in this house. There's a madman upstairs. You shouldn't have come here. You see, it may be dangerous. Oh, Philip, not something else horrible. You're afraid, aren't you? You don't believe in God, and yet you're afraid to die. So those of you all that are not super familiar with the old dark house, I'm going to read you a brief summary, but I will also tell you it is old enough that it's like everywhere for free. So like you can watch it on YouTube, you can watch it on shutter, you can watch it wherever pretty much uh, for like no money. You can like stumble across a remastered version that will probably cost you some cash. But if you just wanted to check out the movie, there is a free version on YouTube because I believe it's in the public domain at this point. So possibly. Yeah. If you, if it's still on shutter, I don't know. I didn't check. Um, the one that was on shutter is the remaster that they did for code media, which is one of the best remasters I've ever seen. Like it, it restores the movie to, it's it's amazing. Like modern movies do not look as good and clean as the the Blu-ray Cohen Media remaster of the Elder House, which was the version that was on Shutter. So it's amazing. Sweet. Awesome. That one. 
Well, and hopefully you all took advantage of uh, the free 30 days you got from the weird symposium and uh, can check it out. So hopefully you have some time left on your free trial and it'll be good to go. Okay. So here is what uh, old rotten tomatoes, I would say it's not one of their longest, but certainly not one of their shortest. Uh, Here is their summary of the old dark house. Frankenstein director James Whale turned J.B. Presley's novel Benighted into a nerve-jangling tale originally released in 1932 that became the template for all the spooky house chillers to come. Stranded travelers stumble upon a strange old house and find themselves at the mercy of a highly eccentric and potentially dangerous family. The atmospheric thriller features an unforgettable post-Frankenstein horror role for Boris Karloff as the hulking disfigured butler Morgan. It also stars in early career roles of Melvin Douglas, Charles Lawton, Raymond Massey, and Gloria Stewart of Titanic fame. All right. So my question every time that you pick a movie, why why this one? Why why start here, Oren? What's what's the significance of the old dark house? Uh it's pro- it, it is not even probably. It's my favorite movie from the 30s, hands down, 100 percent Like I know intellectually that like Frankenstein or definitely Bride of Frankenstein um, or, you know, Dracula or, or probably better, certainly more important movies, but everyone's seen them also. But I love this movie. I love the atmosphere of it. I love the comedy of it. I love the the themes of it. I, I adore everything about this movie. It's perfect as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think that's, uh, it's fair. I would, I would say it's not, uh, it's not my favorite thing in the entire world, but like knowing your aesthetic, this is like, this is probably the the thing that, that formulates a lot of your opinions, you know? So have you read the, the book that it's based off of? Okay. So this is, this is good stuff. Um, so the book that it's based off of, I actually helped get back into print. So Valancourt Books, you, you are familiar with Valancourt Books. Um, back when they were still here in Kansas City, uh, I brought to them the idea that they should do Benighted and bring it back to print. And so when they did, I got to write the introduction for the Valancourt edition of Benighted. So if you pick up the Valancourt edition, that's I wrote the introduction for it. It was the first introduction I ever wrote, in fact. I love that. How cool is that? So how did that that conversation go specifically? Were you just so familiar with it all that you were like, hey, we got to do this? So I had read the book. So I I saw the movie a few years ago, and I loved it so much that I tracked the book down via interlibrary loan from some old, uh, probably the last time it was in print, so probably like the 60s or something edition like a hardcover old um you know like cloth bound edition um and read it there and i loved the book uh which is both really close to the movie but also really different in some ways and and its own whole thing and i loved it too um and so when i was talking with the guys when i when i learned that valancourt books was based in kansas city i was like okay i have to talk to these guys so I was talking, yeah, I started a conversation with them anyway, and I talked to them several times. Um, and we were just talking one time, and I was like, you know, you know what book you should do? You should totally do Benighted. And they did, and ended up doing a bunch of other J.B. Priestley books as well. Um, I dig it. Yeah, it was it was just kind of a, oh, this is absolutely the kind of book you guys do. You know, it's, it's, it's this sort of classic Gothic book that's out of print, you know? yeah. Well, and that, that is immediately like I had two responses to this movie kind of right off the bat. Right. The, the first response is like always that kind of tingle in the back of my brain when I'm like, dude, like this is totally something that you could show. I probably wouldn't show the whole thing to a high school class. Cause like it wouldn't necessarily, uh, it wouldn't hold their interest for 90 minutes. But if I were teaching Gothic literature or something like, uh, d- d- duh, you know, like this, right. this is, uh, you know, a no brainer. But what I also like the first 10 minutes of this movie are like fucking hilarious. They're yeah. really funny. And I mean, the relate, the relationship between, you know, uh, the, the kind of two leads, right. The male and the female 
mm-hmm. are uh, like funny and sardonic and they have a real, I think, natural way of communicating with one another that reminded me a lot of the way I talk to my wife or, you know, like whatever, like they, they kind of give each other shit in a mm-hmm. loving way. And it reminded me of a movie. Um, have you seen Haunted Honeymoon? I actually haven't. Oh, all right. So I Haunted Honeymoon and a couple of other flicks, uh, I think have this, uh, it is, they are definitely like horror comedy, right? I think uh, the other one that I really love is a movie called Nothing But Trouble, which is, mm-hmm. I've, I've, yeah, like they they kind of invert the idea of the haunted house. They make it comedic, right? And uh, uh, almost always have uh, this this kind of setup that feels like I don't like we've seen the movie a thousand times, you know. And it was so crazy to me that. Like kind of this movie is like the the pre-code version of everything that you know that everything that comes after it is that fair? Oh yeah, I mean, and like nothing but trouble definitely, uh, like consciously, I think is inspired by this movie, like and and other movies like it. But I, I'm I'm sure the people who made nothing but trouble had seen this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, it. Uh, like uh, the the use of age as uh, a way to villainize and you know that kind of stuff. It, uh, gosh, I, I I haven't seen that movie in probably twenty or thirty years. I need to go it's, back and revisit. I, it. I, haven't, I haven't either. And I, what I remember clearly is that it is real fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like, like I I hesitate to like to say I loved it. I I did though. Like, but that was like I don't know twelve year old me, right? <laughs> it was like, but like yeah. it kind of disturbed twelve year old me. Yeah, I wasn't used to comedies doing. Yeah, even but like comedies, like even horror movies, like it made me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, like uh, I, the one thing I remember from that is like the old guy is really rapey, right? And right. I'm like, that probably is not going to hold up super well, you know? Like, and like Dan Aykroyd is like 20 people in it or something. Mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd plays like everyone. Yeah, and yeah, except cool. except Demi Moore. Yeah. Oh, right. what a, yeah, what a what a strange uh, what, a, what a strange little film. Okay, so I mentioned pre-code, right? And when mm-hmm. you do some background and research on this movie, the fact that it is pre-code is really really important in explaining its role at the time and kind of how it influenced stuff later on. You are the master when it comes to this older stuff. So can you talk to us um, about? what pre-code as a concept means and how it how it kind of plays in with the larger idea of, of modern movies? So um, pre-code refers to movies that came out before the enforcement of um, the... Everybody just calls it the, the Hayes Code, but it was actually the Motion Picture Production Code. We call it the Hayes Code because it's shorter and uh, it's named after the guy who was the president of the what became the Motion Picture Association of America. It wasn't called that then, it was called something else, but it became that. Um, and the Hayes Code was like, uh, so the government, there were there were a lot of complaints about movies and about the content of movies and specifically about like horror movies and crime movies, about how they were corrupting our youth. You know, the same old thing that we get about comic books or rock and roll or video games or something every few years. And the government was talking about censoring them, essentially, you know, passing some kind of law regulating what could be in movies. And so in order to prevent that, the Motion Picture Association uh, voluntarily did it themselves. Essentially, they said, you know, no, no, you don't have to censor us, we'll do it. And so they came up with this Hayes Code that was like, you know, here's what cannot be in movies. Um, and I mean, we could talk about the, the Hayes Code and Pre-Code and all that stuff for way too long. But the gist of it was that, you know, before the, before the code was enforced, movies were a lot weirder and more daring and more risque than they were after. And the code was technically passed in, the, in 1930, but it wasn't really enforced until 34. So you've got this kind of weird window about four years where movies like The Old Dark House or Dracula or the original Frankenstein all came out during 
um, where the code was technically passed, but no one was enforcing it yet. Um, yeah. And just you get you get like it's not like older pre-code movies are they're not graphic by modern standards. Um, and they're not even direct by modern standards, but they deal with themes in ways that movies would not for 30 years again. Like uh, something I, I put in the notes was uh, Island of Lost Souls, which was the first ever adaptation. It wasn't actually, there was a silent that I missed, but it was an early adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. And um, it, it deals really frankly for a movie from the 30s about with like, the fact that Dr. Moreau's plan is to get the guy he's got shipwrecked on his island to breed with the animal people. Um, and as one does, right? You know, right. And it deals really frankly with like vivisection and um, you know, just this the stuff that movies wouldn't touch for years after this. Um, but right here in this in this pocket of time, right in the very beginning of the 30s, you had these movies that were dealing with these much more kind of risque and frank topics. Yeah, well, and uh, like one of the things when you dig into this movie that it really highlights or, or that bears discussion is how it how it approaches homosexuality, how it portrays this kind of uh, latent. And, you know, the, the latent sexuality of all of the characters, mm -hmm. but specifically a couple of the main characters, one of which you've talked about in a previous episode, right? Uh, probably. Which one are you talking about? Um, uh, well, uh, I, I, I shouldn't say character. I should say uh, the director, right? Like James oh, Whale. James Whale. Yes. Yeah, like uh, that. that's kind of a hallmark, right? Right before this movie, I believe he made... Bride of Frankenstein, right? Right before or right after? Right was right after. This was in between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, I think. Okay. And uh, like he does the same thing with that in oh, yeah. that, like, you know, he's not going to have a character that's out, but there's kind of a character that's out in right. this movie, I mean, right? Ernest Lechinger's characters are like coding. They're not even coded. Yeah, they're just, they're just gay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I don't think anybody asks, but I don't think anybody right. has to, you know, right. like it's, it is, it is a thing that happens. And I, I think that plays an important role in pre-code, post-code discussions, right? Right. Yeah. Like a lot of that stuff, it, Again, it's not like again, not like they ever say it. It's not like it's ever it's ever spelled out, even in the pre-code stuff most of the time. But it is there as a subtext in a way that it's not once the code comes into effect. Like they yeah. skip over it. They tend to skip over it. I mean, there there were directors who were pushing the envelope even while the code was in effect. But yeah, well, in in the big example, um, in one of my film classes that I took in college, like the the big example of post-code discussions of homosexuality had to be so much more disguised right and it, it had to do with um rebel without a cause and uh heathcliff right like mm -hmm. clearly uh there is a relationship that is in the subtext of that but because it's postcode it is it's got to be so much more subtle right it's got to be done with camera angles and it's got to be done with you know like uh, a, a lingering shot on somebody looking at someone else as opposed to, to both of these films that I think are, are having that discussion in a pretty open and in frank manner, which I think is incredibly progressive for the era, right? Well, and you get, um, and it's, it's not just that discussion, either. like you get, um, you get a much more, again, they never say it, but a much more frank discussion of like, uh, oh, the, the chorus girl character's relationship to, uh, Charles Lawton's character where like where she clearly acknowledges that everyone assumes that they're having sex right but explains that they're not because he's still in love with his dead wife essentially and but but also basically says that she would 
she's like, yeah, she says something like, you know, I'm not, I'm not pretending like I'm any better than I am or something like I, I would do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just well, not right now. And that's, and that, and she's not judged for that. Like, that's fine. She's still the romantic lead. Right. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and I think kind of alludes to what, what we've kind of been nibbling at the corners about, which is like, there is some hokey shit in this. There is some, you know, kind of boilerplate tropey stuff that is important probably for where horror movies are now, but at the time kind of feel a little, uh, you know, aged or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think the relationships all of these characters have together with one another, I think is really complex and laudatory and really, really interesting because it drives, you know, all of the action of the film. One of the things that it's, it's not drawn out as much in the film as it is in the book, but it does get mentioned in the film is the idea that basically all of these characters who end up at this house, like the people in the house already are, are artifacts from the past, essentially, right? Like right. They're, they're, they're leftovers from a bygone era. People who show up are modern people for, for the time, you know? Sure. Um, and all of the modern people who show up are people who are essentially adrift in the life for some reason. And the reason that they're all adrift is because World War One just ended. Okay. Um, and the really fascinating thing about both the book and the movie is that like World War One cast this huge dark shadow over both. Um but in both happened before world war ii was going on and yet that future that very dark future is there really emphatically in the book even though it hasn't happened yet like even when the book was written you know world war ii had not started yet at the same time you could feel it waiting in the wings like the author expected it i love it interesting Um, and so, like, it's very much this this story about these people trapped in this liminal space between these two wars, one of which has not happened yet when the book is even being written. Huh. Um, well, and, and... Fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it alludes probably to the larger role this movie plays with the horror genre in general. It kind of, it, it doesn't... I don't think we can say it's solely responsible for like haunted house films. Like I, I think that's, that's a big ask for this movie, but I definitely think it brings some of the modern tropes and you mentioned the liminal space between the two wars, like a haunted house is is itself liminal space, right? right? Like it is, it is this thing that is both of earth, but of, you know, Super, world, yeah, right? of supernatural stuff, you know. Right. So, and, and it's a house almost always. It in modern days, we've gotten like after poltergeist, we've gotten more houses where this was not the case as much. But in old stuff, especially, it was usually an abandoned house that was haunted, right? And the you know, the abandoned house is a house that is both in the present and the past at the same time, yeah. Um, which this house also is like it's obviously in the present because people arrive at it and all the people living there are still living in the past yeah well and like they're old there's not a you know not a single person in that house so there's this whole generational conflict that i think is really really interesting too you know they are old and like each one of them is trapped in some way by events from the past oh yeah and also like you know the house itself is very old and isn't updated so like the electricity doesn't work very well right Um, you know it's it's not not a modern house it's it's a house that's struggling to be as modern as it is and it's not very modern then um there's also like again in the book there's a lot of subtext that um morgan is a relative not the butler Oh, interesting. I think that completely. He's like an illegitimate half-brother. You get a little bit of it in the movie with his relationship with Saul. Yeah. 
Well, and that completely, I think, adds a fundamentally different angle, right? If he is not just help, but also deranged family, you know, like, I, I love the idea that the, the, the original members of the old Dark House, right, are all trapped in the old Dark House by somebody fundamentally different, you know, like there is not a unifying force, right? right? There is not this one thing that they can all unify and get behind and whatever, like they are all compelled by, you know, different reasons to stick around. Right. So I want to talk for a moment about, uh, and I don't remember the character's name, but I'm hundred percent sure you will. Uh, the, 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 the patriarch, right. The grandfather that lies in his mm -hmm. deathbed, right? Roderick, Roderick them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So originally billed as a male, we know in retrospect, uh, not a male, right? Female. Right. Yeah. And to me, the way that character is played reminded me really, really distinctly of um, the character that Tilda Swinton plays in the Suspiria remake. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. And like, I, 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 didn't necessarily love that sequel. Uh, I probably, I don't know, this is going to be the unpopular opinion here. Please don't send me a thousand emails about it. But like, I'm, I'm not a Jallo guy. So like the original, I was like, yeah, I, it's, it's like horror royalty, but I don't get it. Right. So the remake was really interesting. And I thought did some super interesting things about uh, gender roles and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But why, why cast that role as, you know, but, you know, as a, why have a, a female play that role? And like, what is, I what do you think is the overall importance of that character generally for the movie? Man, um, I mean, you know, the obvious answer is that the character provides exposition, right? The character yeah. knows what's going on. That's, that's the, that's the, the simplest answer, but like, but there's gotta be a reason like why, you know why why we have that big scene with them um and yeah why why james will cast a woman yeah to play uh to play this role and like i i mean i've seen various theories you know um and i'm sure someone has written a very smart you know whole article about it probably many of them that i haven't read but um you know uh, I've, knowing what little I do about James Whale, I mean, I feel like it was partly him getting away with stuff again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That was I my can, immediate thought. Like, I can, I can, this is a situation where I'll be able to cast a woman as a man and. Yeah, because I can. That will, yeah. right, that, will, that will mess with people a little bit, but they won't be sure. Like, because this was in the day, you know, I mean, this was in the age not only before the internet but like this was early days of film right so film was still magic tricks to a huge extent and so a, a really good example of this right is that when this movie came out uh boris Karloff gets titling in it even though he plays a character who never speaks and just really and who isn't prominently featured really in the film um but when it came out, like part of the promotional campaign was universal, like assuring audience members that this was the same guy who played Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that sort of underscores this idea that like we wouldn't necessarily know, you know, if people were under heavy makeup or something, we wouldn't necessarily know who they were, aside from their credit in the movie, which they didn't always get. You know, uh, we, we didn't have unions enforcing credit rules yet. And so people didn't always get credits in movies. You know, it was it was kind of all over the place. Um, and so, you know, if people were under heavy makeup, which, you know, people like Lon Chaney had kind of made a career out of disappearing under makeup. Right. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know who they were. And so you would have had people back then being like, was that? And since it's credited as a man, like it's got a man's name and it's supposed to be a male character, was that a man? And people would be like, no, that's totally a woman. And then no one would know for sure, right? Yeah. And so I, I feel like it was just kind of James Whale, you know, having fun and poking his finger at gender roles a little bit. 
Yeah, and like it, it adds an, a layer of complexity and weirdness to that role, and you know, like yeah, that makes the character feel strange and kind of otherworldly. Yeah, um, and, and and frail, and you know, like I, I think terms you know generally associated with, uh, you, you know, femininity, but also with you know, the frailty of age. And right. I think it, it works really yeah. well in that yeah, context. I mean, the actress is fantastic playing it. Like the, the pauses and the stutter and everything she gives the character is, is amazing. Just a really delightful role. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about the bride of Frankenstein and, you know, very clearly uh, the old dark house is there anything to add to the kind of pat, you know, the patronage and in the legacy of James Whale? Cause I feel like he is an interesting figure in both the evolution of horror movies as we know it, but also in the discussion of like the fact that horror movies themselves can often be these great way to critique particular, um, you know, the things about society ideas, yeah. you know, um, yeah, whatever. I mean, I think given, you know, within the sort of limited uh, window we have here, I think um, a thing that's worth saying is that if you're interested in James Whale, there's a biopic of him from 1998, um, which I find fascinating because in it he's played by Ian McKellen. Oh, awesome. Um, and for one thing, you know, Ian McKellen, obviously also like James Whale, gay. Um, but uh, if anyone could kind of ape Ernest Thesiger's very arch, very fey deliveries, I think it would be Ian McKellen. Yeah. That, like that very like bitch queen gayness that Ernest Thesiger just radiates. Um, yeah. But, uh, there was this great article from uh, BFI that describes mm -hmm. his character in this movie uh, as bitchy and eye-rolling, which yeah. I fucking, like, yeah. laughed out loud when I read it, because he is totally that way, you know? Like, he's great. And, 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 uh, and it's widely agreed upon that, like, Ernest Thesiger, every time he's in one of James Whale's movies, is basically a stand-in for James Whale. Like, he's, he's playing the externalized, you know, person James Whale kind of wants to have been. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Be nearly that open. Um, Man, that, yeah, I love it. I love it. So, uh, do you remember what the name of that uh, yeah, biopic um, is? It's called Gods and Monsters. Okay, great. Uh, it's got Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. Cool. Um, it's directed by Bill Condon. So sweet, great. Well, yeah. we'll I'll try to hunt down where you can find that. Hopefully, free on some sort of streaming service. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so there are a lot of tropes that this movie kind of ushers in that are, are still with us. And you put this really interesting article uh, in the show notes here, Oren, about kind of the way that those movies function uh, within those tropes. You want to discuss a little bit kind of how The Old Dark House preps us for all of that and then kind of issues a real conversation about those concepts or, or, you know, doesn't necessarily fit that definition. Okay. So the first thing I have to talk about is like the old dark house as a genre, right? Because a lot of people, when they talk about this movie, they talk about it as though it is sort of as though it was like the first movie or something in this, but it absolutely was not like the, the old dark house subgenre was incredibly popular in the twenties and thirties. Um, it started out in stage plays. It moved into films when, you know, because most early films were adapted from stage plays. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very popular partly because it had one set, essentially, right? You're in, you're right. in, one, you're in one building, more or less, the entire time. Um, but, like, the, the classic Old Dark House movie is actually more like a Scooby-Doo episode than this is. It's a bunch of people end up gathered in a house like this, which this, this part does have that. Um, a lot of times it's for the reading of a will. That's like the most common one. Okay. Um, and 
they all have to stay in this house for a, a duration of time for whatever reason. It's, you know, dark, dark and stormy night, or they have to stay for the reading of the will, or whatever. Um, and as they're staying there, they start getting knocked off. They start getting killed um, by, you know, what appears at first to be like a monster or uh, some sort of cloaked figure or a ghost, or in some cases, it's an animal, like a gorilla or something. But eventually it's revealed that it's actually one of the people there. Like it's one of their number who's doing it. And that's, that's the sort of standard older house formula. And there are hundreds of them from the 20s and 30s. Could, would, it, would it be fair to, uh, to say like movies like House on Haunted Hill and Absolutely. Uh, 13 Absolutely. Ghosts also kind of? Yeah. I mean, they, they are definitely, like they're later, but they're definitely in that same genre. Yeah, they're they're picking up the same genre and running with it um, long after it had stopped being the the kind of ticket seller that it was in the 30s. Um, But no, there's, there's, um, I can put some of the show notes, but there's literally hundreds. There's the Cat and the Canary and the Bat. Um, There's uh, the Monster Blocks and uh, Night Monster, just countless, countless movies. Um, To the extent that there's a Blu-ray set you can buy that's like all... Uh, old dark house films or something that's a hundred cool movies. wow um, i mean they're all they're all garbage like they're all public domain <laughs> they're terrible like they're, they're fine movies but the prints are terrible yeah um you know whatever but uh you know there 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 were like we we remember the 30s as the era of frankenstein and dracula and mummy and stuff but they they were they were the anomalies most horror films in the 30s were these formula old dark house movies which they just made you know a dozen a year or something yeah, yeah. probably reuse sets and you know right. yeah. more, more or less plots um, I, and so this this film is actually kind of anomalous in that regard because it came out after these had already been popular and begins like one but then spins out into something different yeah I think that's fair. A little more complex and it's got a little more going on with it. Yeah. I I might add, it's, it's really crazy that we are having this conversation about this style of horror movie tonight, because I don't know if you've been following Lovecraft country, but you totally should Cause it's fucking awesome. But so starting uh, in episode two, the episodes really start to revert into this like different, subgenre every episode and some of that is because matt ruff has written it that way but mm-hmm. some of it is that they really have like like gone for it and episode three which comes out this sunday uh i'm still under a strict embargo so i can't you know tell you too much about it but i will tell you it is an old dark house episode and it is oh, so awesome. fucking rad and rad. like my my immediate response was this is like 13 ghosts right like it it kind of captures mm-hmm. the the, the the feeling of it all in the kind of claustrophobia while at the same time keeping with it the edge that it has so if you like any of these movies try to figure out a way to watch uh the new episode this sunday because it is yeah. so good so well, good uh, so something i do want to talk about since we're talking about sort of how uh how the old dark house influenced later films and this may be jumping the gun a bit um but an interesting thing for me is that so, so you have the, the sort of classic er, old dark house formula like I just described, which obviously went on to influence things like Scooby-Doo episodes um, and movies like, you know, 13 Ghosts and, and Awesome Hill. But then you have this actual film itself. And I think what's fascinating to me is that the movies that this film directly like gave rise to, right? I, I don't want to say influenced, um, like like the the most direct lifeline between this movie and a, a present day movie goes to movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, House of a Thousand Corpses, not, not any of the movies we would initially think of. Yeah. Um, you want, like, you want to explain that connection a little bit more? So, like, so essentially, right, what what this movie is about is these people, these these innocent victims, which interestingly is is itself kind of an anomaly. 
for movies from this era. People in movies from this era were not typically random victims in horror films. They were people who put themselves in that situation on purpose for whatever reason. Huh. Okay. Um, the the random people being victims did not come about until after the 50s. Uh, in, in movies leading up to the 50s, the people who were the protagonists in horror movies were experts or uh, paranormal investigators or people who were directly involved in the phenomena in some way. Hmm. Um, most of the time. Like, even in the old Dark House movies, there would be like the, the female lead would typically be like an heir who had, you know, been away for a long time and she was the innocent victim one, but like around her, there would be like a detective who was there because something suspicious was going on or whatever. Like there would be these experts who were professionals at, at dealing with this kind of stuff. Um, and so this is anomalous in that these people are just random people. Okay. In this situation. Yeah. Um, so, so you've got this group of random people who end up at a house of a deranged family <laughs> where they are put in immediate peril by those family members, right? It's it's essentially the plot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just much more tame and genteel. Yeah. And, um, and, and uh, like, latently, right? Like, right. I don't know if they ever explicitly go into it, but, like, all of our strangers are urban, right? And, and there is some passing reference right. to their urbanity. And right. these people very clearly... You know the people who live in the house are very clearly not, and yeah, like, yeah, they're 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 from out in the country. They're Welsh, which matters if you're from Britain, I assume. Like, <laughs> I, I but I think it would be, you know, I think it would be the sort of the way it's written about in the book and the way they talk about it in the movie. It it would be like, you know, it'd be like going out in boonies, right? Like, right, right. Um, it, they're they're in Wales. They're not in they're not in you know the the urban part of England. Yeah. Well, and they they almost have a Romani aspect to them, you know. Like uh, there's this kind of, and it, it may be Christianity. I'd have to go back and look for it. But this kind of orthodoxy about uh, the older sister, right? The the, Absolutely, the yeah. matriarch now of the the household that that feels old school. That feels foreign. Feels yeah. not contemporary. So right, yeah, yeah. and um, like. To, to sort of to sort of demonstrate that this is not just me theorizing about a movie I really like. <laughs> you would never do that. <laughs> in, in House of Thousand Corpses, there's a scene at the beginning where they're watching TV and what they're watching is this movie. No way, how cool. Yeah. All right. So like like it is very like Rob Zombie is very clearly drawing from this movie in that one. Rad. I love it. Um, and so, like, you know, as much as I'm not a big fan of, like, House of a Thousand Corpses or something, like, it's it's fascinating to me that, like, we have these, like, as you said, this movie is to modern standards. It's creaky, and it's, it's very, like, cozy and very genteel and very uh, restrained. But its evolution leads us to, like, the most... Sure. Grotesque and unrestrained. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think. Um, and also, since you brought up Lovecraft Country, um, it's fascinating because uh, the Lovecraft Street, the, the picture in the house, um, also goes like straight to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. If you ever read Picture in the House, it's like, it's, it's very odd for a Lovecraft story because it's just like, this guy goes to this house and the dude there's a cannibal. Ah, all right. <laughs> um, it's it's way less. It, it deals with cosmic themes, but it's way less. You know, oh, tentacles and unnamed monsters. Way more like, oh, this dude eats people. Which, to be fair, was something Lovecraft wrote about a lot. But yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, okay. so like, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I. To be fair, I found this movie charming. Uh, oh. It. Uh, Maybe not is not quite as much my cup of tea as it was yours, but I am better for having watched it because I've I it, I had not watched it yet, which is okay. a lot. You know, like I'm I just have uh, shitty pedigree when it comes to that. A, a so of, honestly, though, though, a lot of people haven't seen this one because it's not 
it's partly because it's not as as sort of well regarded as like Bride of Frankenstein, right? Or or the movies that were right around it. Right. But also for decades it was lost. Right. Yeah. I had I I kind of fell into some of that. There was a re-release in the the sixties, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh when, when Chris Harrington discovered it, I believe. Yeah. Because yeah, um, that, which is another fascinating thing is that uh, director Curtis Harrington, who made Night Tide and Queen of Blood and a bunch of other schlock movies in the sixties, uh, is the guy who rediscovered a print of this. So like, he's who we have to thank for this movie being in existence at all. Now. Which which is unbelievable, you know? <laughs> like that's crazy, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it would just stumble across it. Yeah. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but. You and I liked it. We are not the only ones. So uh, this person happened to not like it. And this is our anonymous Amazon user in the back of the room. And he says, I went into this expecting an old black and white horror movie. What I got was an old black and white movie that consisted largely of people being passive aggressive at each other in an old house, which I guess is about as good as I could hope for. (laughs) Which I like... That, that that is kind of this movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But my uh, my runner up here is the half a star on Letterbox. Okay. And the only comment, the only comment from this half a star was, "Yeah." Dot. 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 Pretty gay. <laughs> like, I mean, like that. It's hilarious to me because that could easily also be my five-star review of this movie. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, uh, yes, you know. Yes, yes, this movie is extremely gay. Five stars. Yeah, right. Like, uh, it is, especially the world in which uh, you and I exist in, where we believe that horror should be, like, uber transgressive and should absolutely push boundaries. And, you know, like, you'd be like, Yes, that is a reason to go go out and catch this movie for sure. So, well, uh, anything left to be said about the old dark house? I mean, countless things, but I think we're pretty much out of time. So, <laughs> very fair, very fair. Well, where can they find uh, more of your stuff out on uh, the web? Uh, as always, I am Orin Gray on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and uh, at OrinGray.com. Very good. You can find more of my stuff. Uh, I tweet into the void uh, about horror movies and politics and politics and horror movies at Ty Unsel. Otherwise, uh, I'm kind of running the day-to-day at Signal Horizon Magazine. Uh, feel free to check out all of our Fantasia Fest coverage and kind of everything else that we are covering. I will say before we end tonight's episode, uh, I think it's really important to recognize what is going on in the world right now. And I think I I briefly thought about it feels weird to talk about horror movies when the world is is on fire. Um, But I'm a teacher and a lot of the folks on staff here at Signal Horizon are teachers and it's it's we all start back to school here in two weeks. And the thing that has been dominating my brain is how how I teach to my students of color. And it's just really important, I think, to make the announcement to let everybody know that uh, at Signal Horizon, we absolutely believe that Black Lives Matter, that Black students matter, and uh, that horror is hopefully one more way that we can go fight those bad guys, because there are a lot of bad guys out there in the world. And, uh, you know, part of the job of teachers is to train our students to to go out and fight the good fight so we support all of you out there that are fighting the good fight and we hope that uh you'll join us in two weeks uh when what are we talking about in two weeks Oren? i believe we are going to talk about one dark night one dark night we're going to keep in theme and move from uh dark night to dark night uh this this time jumping ahead to the 80s in uh Another movie I haven't seen, but I am so incredibly jazzed to a check out. So every year. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think I'm, I'm like legitimately very excited to check it out. So uh, until we meet again, everybody, uh, please take care of one another. Um, please continue to watch horror. And uh, if you would like to communicate directly with me, you can absolutely do that. Tyler at signal uh, If you have some recommendations or whatnot. 
So until you hopefully see me again, class dismissed.